Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Angela Onwachi Willick. She is Dean and Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. She is a leading scholar of law and inequality. Her research centers on race, gender, and class inequalities, employment discrimination, affirmative action, and family law. She is currently working on a book that explores the legal outcomes involving the killing of unarmed Black people and how those outcomes affect Black communities. I wanted to talk to Angela because of Biden's announcement that he would nominate a Black woman to the Supreme Court and also because of the additional announcement identifying that nominee as Katanji Brown-Jackson. I've spoken about racism and discrimination before, but I wanted an accomplished legal scholar to discuss this issue with me. And Dean Onwachi Willig is just that. We discuss the racism underpinning the negative reaction to the announcement that the nominee would be a Black woman, and in particular, Katanji Brown-Jackson. It was important to me to talk to a Black female legal scholar because of the parallels she's probably experienced with Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson and the insights that she can bring because of that. I figure she's likely faced some of those same criticisms that Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has experienced. The conversation I have with her leads us to examine a variety of things, affirmative action, why diversity matters, and why diversity enriches the legal context for issuing opinions, and also what might we expect during the nomination process for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. I also talk with her about allowing somebody to have a different opinion than maybe what I might have on something, a different legal opinion on moral issues, and that doesn't mean that they're necessarily unqualified. So I'm hoping you listen to this conversation, take it all in, and be ready for the nomination process for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. America Media has a very special offer for you this Lent. Our team has written daily Lenten reflections to help our digital subscribers on their journey toward Easter. The authors include Father Matt Malone, Father James Martin, the hosts of Jesuitical, myself, and many more. To get access to these reflections, visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe and become a subscriber today. Stick around. My conversation with Angela Onwachi Willig is up next. Hello, Angela. I'm so glad you could join me today on the podcast. Ah, thank you for having me. It's great to speak with you. Can I just tell you one of the things that's also so exciting for me is to actually talk to another Black woman and <laughs> analyze this situation and a Black woman who's an accomplished lawyer. You're just brains, let me just tell you. So I'm so happy to talk with you about this. So I have to say, you know, when President Biden first announced, before he even identified who his nominee was, he came out and listed how qualified the person would be and then ended his announcement saying, and this will be a Black woman. And I have to say that I was taken aback by the negative reaction to that announcement as if the only thing that mattered was that it was a Black woman and that must mean that it was mutually exclusive from being qualified. 
And I'm like, am I reading this wrong? What was your take? Yeah, there, there was certainly definitely the part of the reaction from some people was just it must have been a disbelief that there was any Black woman that could possibly be qualified right. to sit on the Supreme Court. I mean, I think President Biden was like, there are a plethora of women who are qualified to sit on this court. I could pick any one of them and I yes. will pick one of them. And they will be amazing. They will bring a perspective that's not represented on the court. They will add institutional legitimacy to the court. To me, it seemed that there was no issue, no problem at all with him saying that. Other presidents had said that. President Reagan had made the same comment when he appointed Justice O'Connor to the bench. But certainly for some people, there was just simply, you know, utter disbelief that somehow a Black woman would be suitable to sit on the Supreme Court. I have to say I was taken aback when I was a newly appointed employee of, I believe, Georgetown University made the statement publicly that he thought somebody else would be qualified, but no, it's going to be a lesser Black woman. But it also made me think about how people started to then talk about affirmative action. And I was like, I don't think people understand what affirmative action is. And maybe you can help correct my understanding and that of my listeners. I always thought affirmative action is about affirmatively acting on applicants who are qualified, but have been from a class of people that have historically been barred simply because of their race or gender. And that's an accurate description. And in this particular case, I mean, we at least knew three of the potential people who were being considered who were stellar candidates, who look like people who have been on the court before, right? So, you know, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the actual nominee, looks precisely like many of the people who've been on the court, in fact, better than yeah. some of the current justices on the court who are great, you know, certainly well qualified to sit mm-hmm. on the bench, yeah. who look precisely like them, in fact, has more experience than some of them, right? So yeah. went to Harvard Law School, Harvard undergraduate, was on the Harvard Law Review, clerked as on the federal district court, appellate court, and Supreme Court level after law school, worked both in private practice at a large law firm, worked as a public defender, would be the first public defender ever to sit on the Supreme Court, so bringing a really important lens to all these cases, and had more judicial experience than Justice Thomas, than Justice Roberts, than Justice Coney Barrett, and Justice Kagan all had when they were appointed combined. So Mm. had more experience when you look at her judicial experience as a federal district court judge and a federal appellate court judge than all four of those justices combined, and yet was called a lesser candidate. And if we think about the bias that Black women face in, especially in private law firms, right? Mm -hmm. If we look at the study that talked about, you know, the giving this brief or this memo that the same exact memo on one of them, they were told that a Black associate had written it and a white associate had written it. These partners all found way more mistakes on the memo when they thought a Black associate had written it than when a white associate had written it, right? Interesting. And so think about the bias that she had gone through Throughout her entire career working at these law firms, excelling at every turn and becoming the first Black woman at a law firm in South Carolina, right? In many ways, some people could say that's the cradle of the Confederacy, right? I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I can't affirm. It is the cradle of the Confederacy. (laughs) And I can can affirm for you, also as a Black woman, Ivy League educated, who had to go back to South Carolina for some things, how my credentials were questioned. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) 
So it's really kind of shocking when you think about it. And when you think about some of the comments people have made about these judges and didn't make any of the same kinds of critiques that could have been levied against some of the white judges when they were being considered for the court. Well, President Trump said, I'm nominating a woman. And that's when he nominated Justice Coney Barrett. And that didn't raise any kind of rancor. Now, I have heard the argument, which does not hold water for me, but maybe there's something to it, where I think it was actually Senator Ted Cruz had made the comment that to make the nominee a Black woman, this was before Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was mentioned, he said, you're limiting it to 6% of the population because Black women are only 6% of population. That means 94% of population go away. You know, And I thought, wait a minute. Black women still represent the category of women. Yes. (laughs) So in other words, using that logic, the only category of people that could ever accurately portray or represent women would be white women. Right. You know, any, you know, using that logic. And I'm like, but wait, we are women too. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So so that was kind of my take on the argument that, but by saying a woman is one thing, but a black woman is just narrowing it too far. Am I reading that wrong or do you think that- I think you're reading it exactly correctly. And I think there are also some other things that are a little bit disingenuous there, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody recognizes that these appointments, to some extent, there's a political aspect to it. And Biden was elected to office with huge support from the African-American population, African-American mm-hmm. voters, and in particular, mm-hmm. Black women voters put yeah. him in office. And he was, in many ways- from a political standpoint, giving a nod to a community that really, really supported him and giving a nod to Senator Clyburn, Representative Clyburn, Clyburn yeah, right, who Clyburn. made it possible for him to be president in many ways. The other yeah. thing is that when you're looking at an appellate court and you're thinking about, you know, how do I make an appellate court where you have a diversity of voices. And the whole point of an appellate court is that you want to have a lot of really smart people who are coming together and looking at these complex legal issues from a broad range of perspectives. You Mm want to say, what is a perspective that's currently missing on the court? So President Trump might have said, well, you know, we need the perspective of a conservative or right-leaning woman mm-hmm. on the court. And that's why I'm going to want to nominate a woman. He wasn't looking at left-leaning women. He was looking right. at a narrow set of women, right? So right. even when Senator Cruz says that he was looking at women, right, he was looking at an even smaller segment of women. I don't know what percentage of women are actually right-leaning women mm-hmm. in the law, but it's got to be a pretty small percentage. It might be 6% too. Right, right. But President Biden is also thinking about, well, what perspective is missing from the bench? What are the perspectives that would enrich the deliberations of these justices who are deciding cases that affect all Americans, that affect all people who reside within our borders of the United States? And the perspective that is missing is one of an African-American woman. Woman, And you begin to think about all the issues that affect African-American women that come before the Supreme Court and that will be affecting African-American women that come before the Supreme Court. I mean, it would be really in many ways an injustice to continue to allow that exclusion for an additional year even after 232 years of exclusion. So let me say this, you know, a lot of my listeners and myself, we are Catholic and there's certain issues that uh, in our faith that we have particular care about But I want to say one thing that I've always thought, you know, we've had other Catholic justices. I'm thinking of actually Supreme Court Justice Taney, who ruled against Dred Scott. And no one has said that he was unqualified because he ruled in a way 
that is contrary to our faith, right? And so I want to make the distinction that somebody can be qualified and have a different legal opinion on matters that are moral to us. Right. Absolutely. Because so many people keep saying to me, but is she pro-life? Is she this? I was like, I don't know. But can't she also have the room, excuse me for saying it like this, to be wrong, like all the other white male justices in the history of the court and still be qualified? And I think that there is at least this narrowing of what people, some people expect a Black woman must be in order for her to be acceptable. And I think about Paul Ryan, who's pro-life and who's Catholic, who wholeheartedly endorsed her being chosen as a nominee. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the benefits you'll also see from seeing Judge Jackson confirmed on the Supreme Court is that it'll be proof, again, just like when you see diversity within schools, that Black people are not a monolith, that there are a range of views in our society, right, on on issues, right? You'll see the range of views on issues, whether it be abortion, whether it be affirmative action, you'll see the range of views between, Mm -hmm. for example, Justice Thomas and Justice Jackson. She doesn't have to pass a certain litmus test on a variety of issues. I think there's a range of issues. But what I can tell you is that however she sees those issues and analyzes them will be shaped in part by her experiences as a Black woman. Those are important insights to have, right? Because the Supreme Court is deciding cases that affect all people, including Black people, including Black women. Yes. And we do have a perspective of a Black man. And we've had, not just with Justice Thomas, but also right before... Justice Thurgood Marshall. Thank you, Justice Thurgood Marshall. Shame on me for not having that on the tip of my tongue. No, but no. I was looking at his face in my mind <laughs> and had a moment. But yes, but never a Black woman. And so I just want my listeners, because they know I'm very much pro-life. They know I'm very much for religious liberty and all these things. But it doesn't mean that a justice who, looking at the law, comes to a maybe a different conclusion than I would like that doesn't mean they're unqualified. Absolutely. And I think we have to make those kinds of distinctions because that's where I really bristle at the notion of, A, that no Black woman can be qualified. Absolutely. Let's talk about a little bit, why is a Black woman's perspective so valuable? How has that mattered in past cases? Why should that be a perspective that people should defend being on the Supreme Court? You know, some of the Fourth Amendment cases, I think, are really important to have perspective of a Black woman, in particular, a Black mother. And I think a lot about Mm -hmm. policing as someone who's a Black mother Mm -hmm. who worries about my own children, right? Mm -hmm. And the disproportionate Mm -hmm. way in which Black people are stopped by police, um, Mm -hmm. stopped for pretextual reasons, the disproportionate way in which Black people are more likely to die at the hands of police. Mm -hmm. So I worry a lot about Fourth Amendment jurisprudence and the way in which it has allowed the over-policing of Black people. Let me just say this. For our listeners, in real simple terms, Fourth Amendment protects us from unreasonable search and seizure by law enforcement. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. I just was thinking somebody might not know that. No, thank you. I'm glad glad you said that. I should have said that, and I appreciate you said that. There are these things called the consensual encounters, and I'll give you an example where I think a Black woman's voice might make a difference. It may not. She might see this differently, right? Mm -hmm. But but Mm -hmm. consensual encounters and police can stop you and ask you, you know, what your name is, ask you for your ID, ask you to search your car without any reason for suspicion, right? Without any kind of articulable suspicion. And the court says, so long as you feel free to decline the request or Mm -hmm. just end the encounter, free, free to walk away and leave. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I don't know any black people who feel like they can just Never. feel free to decline me? a uh, request from a police officer or walk away from them without putting their life at risk. Turn your back, get and, shot now. <laughs> so from, from my point of view, that is a legal fiction, right? right? That very idea of a consensual encounter did not take into account the realities of black people. The justices who all voted for that were all white justices. Mm-hmm. I don't think they ever thought about that. And if you look at polls from the Pew Research Center and other kinds of places that have made polls about policing and different yeah. experiences, you'll mm-hmm. see there's a real racialized difference, right, in how people experience policing, how people experience stops, how people are treated by police, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, having the perspective, right, of a Black mother, would we have something like a consensual encounter or at least that kind of, like, doctrine if right. there had been a Black woman on the bench who was explaining those kinds of thoughts. And it, it reminds me kind of when Justice Thomas was sitting and was asking questions in a case called Virginia versus Black, which mm-hmm. involved a statute that allowed for punishment, right? Criminal punishment for people who were burning crosses on lawns. And Justice yeah. Thomas was arguing burning a cross is not expression. It's not speech. It is conduct, right? Because mm. it was simply meant to terrorize people. And he asked this question during oral arguments. Mm. And the minute he asked this question, you begin to see a shift in how people begin to ask their questions, right? Mm. They don't ultimately adopt his view, but you can see that it shaped the opinion. In fact, Justice O'Connor, when she writes the majority opinion, which does not ultimately adopt his view, she writes, she begins the entire opinion with the history of cross-burning, talking about how it was used to terrorize populations, how it was used in lynchings, right? Things of that, Mm -hmm. that nature. And so again, like, even when it doesn't shape the outcome of the case, it can be really critical to have these perspectives because it might shape the context under which the Uh doctrine is written. And -hmm. I think that's really important. Another situation is I think, you know, affirmative action, for example, you know, she's coming to the case as somebody, as a Black woman who was at the top of her class, who excelled, right? who's telling her counselor she's thinking about going to Harvard College and her counselor says, don't set your sights too high, right? Yes. That's an important insight to have when you're talking about affirmative action and the reasons why it is important to, from my perspective, because I'm somebody who supports affirmative action, the reasons why it's important for universities to be taking race and sex and other factors into consideration as they're building their class. What gets lost is, Qualifications are not simply one's test scores and grades. Qualifications are what you bring as a person, you know, what you might bring as someone who's going to excel. What are you going to bring as somebody who's going to help to change society and make it better, right? And that's the kind of student we want, right? That's the kind of student schools want because those are the kind of students who make a difference in the world, right? Those are the kinds of students who have their own podcast, right? Those are the (laughs) kinds of students who are using their voices for good, right? Mm. And so... I think that we want to look at the whole story when we're looking at students, because if we're just looking at numbers, frankly, mm-hmm. all of these schools, we could all build our classes many times over just based on numbers. We're looking right. at the whole applicant and we're looking mm-hmm. at what they bring in terms of their qualities as a leader, in terms of their grit and resilience, in terms of a variety of factors. Yeah. And part of that story 
for some people is race, right? I can't mm-hmm. tell my story without talking about race because part of my story is overcoming barriers related to race and class and gender and all those things. Now, I have no idea where Judge Jackson falls on affirmative action. Right. I'm guessing, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> but I have no idea. But I think based on her experience as a student in high school, I would guess that that's a really important insight to share with her colleagues who probably didn't experience that same thing. Exactly. I agree. And I think we've had hundreds of years of white men and their perspectives and experiences. We've had now since Justice O'Connor, the perspectives of white women. And I welcome having the perspective of a black woman. But I, how do we answer the objection that it's not fair to white men? I would say that we've had a history of 230 years of unfairness to African-American women in terms of their exclusion on the court. And for many of those years, African-American women were explicitly excluded from being considered for the court. And for some of those years, African-American women were in bondage, right? And so let's let's talk about unfairness there. Mm -hmm. I would also say that, again, when you're talking about an appellate court, the heart, what makes an appellate court strong, what makes it good is diversity. And so for it to be unfair to white men, there's an overrepresentation of white men on the court. When we're talking about a court that's making decisions that affect the lives of all people who reside within the United States, mm-hmm. there's an overrepresentation of people who bring that lived experience to the bench. And we know that people's lived experience shapes how they read cases, how they read briefs, how they understand the law. And there isn't that perspective represented by Black women. And so I don't see how that is unfair when you're talking about a court that is strengthened by diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You and I see it as strengthening the court, diversity strengthening it. Some argue that it is unfair. And, you know, we'll just have to let people listen to what we, our perspectives on it and come to their own conclusion. But, you know, in the coming weeks, what should we look for during Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination process or nomination hearings? I think that you should look for some of the similar kinds of questions and tactics that were employed during the confirmation process that Mm -hmm. Justice Sotomayor experience with the wise Latina comment, for example, I think you'll probably see people asking her questions related to race and gender and asking her about her ability to be neutral in a way that was not asked about some of her future colleagues, I believe will be her future colleagues. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that she will ultimately be confirmed I think that it's undeniable that she is well-qualified as Senator Mitch McConnell has conceded. And the fact of the matter is that all judges come with experiences that shape them. Amen. I could talk to you for another hour, but I know our schedules don't permit it. But I just want to thank you so much, Professor Onwachi Willig, for joining us. And you've just given us so much insight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please 
Share this episode with a friend or family member. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And could you do me a favor? Leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. You can also follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.